I'm reading from the English Standard Version, Luke 16, 19 through 31. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and was feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able. And none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that they may warn them, he may warn them, and send him and tell them that I have come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Amanda. Today, um, we have a heavy subject, so I'm glad there's a little levity here. Um, we've been talking about why Christian, and we've, we've been talking about um, why we believe certain things that we believe and why there's evidence and logic to believe them. And one of the things that is the most unpopular of all of the classic Christian doctrines is this idea of, of hell. Uh, Peter Kreeft writes this. He says, of all the doctrines in Christianity, hell is probably the most difficult to defend, the most burdensome to believe, and the first to be abandoned. And there are lots of conversations that go something like this. Well, hell is kind of a disgusting doctrine that I can't really stomach, and Christianity says that hell exists and God created it, and so I simply don't want to be a Christian and believe in that. I just can't do that. Now, how do we respond as Christians to something that seems to be uh, logical and rational? And the goal, the goal today is twofold. Number one, to give you a logic and a rationale for the doctrine of hell that maybe uh, wasn't clear to you before. And then second, to help you understand hell a little bit more because it's in understanding this doctrine that we will finally have an understanding of how much God really loves us. We will never understand how much God went through for us on our behalf unless we understand this idea of hell. C.S. Lewis wrote this, there's no doctrine 
which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than hell if it lay in my power, but it has the full support of scripture and specifically of our Lord's own words. It has always been held by Christendom and it has the support of reason. So there it is. Let's get to it. What are the reasons behind this idea? And I want to talk about three J's today. I want to talk about Jesus for a little bit, talk about justice for a little bit, and then we'll end with the judge. First, Jesus is going to say, hell is real. Now, most people throw around a lot of hate for God. They blame him for just about everything, but usually at the very same time, those people will look at Jesus and love Jesus because Jesus is seen as love and mercy and forgiveness, and he is those things. But what isn't associated with Jesus very often is this idea of judgment, this idea of hell. It's kind of unfathomable because in this case, almost everything we know about this place called hell comes straight from the teachings of Jesus himself. If you have one of those red letter Bibles where uh, Jesus's words are in red, 13 out of every 100 of those words are going to be about hell. Half of all of the parables Jesus told were about hell or wrath or punishment or God's judgment. And so Jesus talks about judgment where people will be separated like sheep are separated from goats. He talks about uh, this outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He, He talks about hell as an unquenchable fire where flesh is burned but doesn't die. And hell and Jesus at the end of the day, are linked. You might want to get rid of hell, but you can't get rid of hell without getting rid of Jesus because he's the one, he's the reason we know about it. Um, He taught that it's a real place in Matthew chapter 25. He taught that it's a place of horrendous suffering in Luke 16, that's our text today. And he taught that it's as forever as heaven is. We like to think of heaven being forever, Well, he uses the same word when he discusses and he describes this place called hell. And so if you believe Jesus is God, that he's resurrected back to life as no one else has, then it's an untenable position to ever say, well, I'm a Christian, but I don't really believe in hell. Why? Because the author of all Christianity, Jesus himself, believed in hell and taught about it. Now, I say all of that just to say this. Would you please... Just listen to what Jesus has to say. That's it. That's the starting point. Just listen to the one who taught that God is love, right? But right alongside that, he also taught that hell is real. And he intertwined those things so much and so often that it is impossible to believe only one of those things and still say that you believe in what Jesus taught. And so Jesus taught it, Jesus said it, hell is real. But at the end of the day, that concept still bothers us a little bit. We recoil, we wanna dismiss it. Even brilliant Christian thinkers that I've already uh, alluded to today, they they want to try to (laughs) cast this aside, but we can't. Why would we ever entertain that our ideas about hell are better than Jesus's ideas? And so maybe... Some of us venture down this path of wanting to discount this doctrine because of the judgy kind of way that the church has approached it in our experience. Maybe the church has said something like, we're right and you're wrong and unless you change, you're gonna burn. And they haven't always said it with tears. 
And that's the, that's the part that bothers us. Sometimes this subject is approached and it's approached with a gleeful smugness from Christians rather than with tears. And you can understand why people would be turned off from that. But even more pressing, maybe some of, this, of, of us are going down this road because, uh, that we don't want to believe in this place called hell because we've had loved ones and loved ones can't be left out of the equation. People we have loved have died and we know that they have never trusted Jesus. That's a hard one for us. Some have given up this idea of hell purely because of this emotional reason. Uncle Joe did never decide for Christ and I can't believe in a God who would cast Uncle Joe off to weeping and gnashing of teeth in eternal flames. And so I can't go on believing in God and there is an emotional element here that cannot be ignored. We can't underscore that, right, enough. But the bottom line is, what I wanna show you today is that there's a logic for hell, there's a justification for it that makes sense of God, that makes sense of humanity, that makes sense of the universe. And the bottom line is that Jesus still tells the truth. And the thing we need to emphasize today to start off is his justice. So let's talk about justice, justice. And justice is going to tell us that hell makes sense. Now. Before we jump into that fully, I want to address a common error, and I'm going to call this error the invented God, and I want you to beware of the invented God. The invented God is what people are referring to when they say something like, well, a good God wouldn't send people to hell. I believe that God is all about love. I believe in an all-loving God, and I want to say today that is an invented God. Why would I say that? Well, well, first, we have to ask, where would you get that belief? The reality is, no major religion ever has taught that God is love exclusively. That, we should, that God should just forgive and he's just a God of mercy and grace and everyone should have their wrongs automatically pardoned and get into heaven forever. No religion teaches that. Uh, even Islam, it believes in somewhat of a Judeo-Christian God. Even Islam will teach that God cannot love people in a personal way. To do so would be dishonoring to God. The closest you come to a God who loves personally is Christianity. But at the very same time, you read about a God who is holy and just, who will judge the world with, and, and right every injustice that has ever taken place. And so if you hear the line, I believe in a God that is only loving, we just need to ask, okay, where did you get that idea? Because no religions teach it. Where did it come from? And it takes a powerful faith to believe in something that there is no evidence for. Here's the biblical God. Here's what we read. When we open up the New Testament, we read of God like this, that he is fully love and he is absolutely just at the very same time. From just the apostle John, there are two or three places that we can turn. John chapter one will say God is fully truth and fully grace at the same time. He was full of grace and truth. And that means that he is all love and he is all justice all the time together. John three sixteen, familiar verse, for God so loved the world that he sent Jesus and he, Jesus was sent to save the world from what? From the judgment of God. In verse 19, 
three verses down, John says that this is the judgment of God, that the light, who is Jesus, came into the world, but people love darkness rather than the light. So we learn in that famous text that God is all love, but he is all justice. In John, 1 John, the letter, chapter four, John says, God is love. And then a few verses down, he says, the reason he is love is he sent Jesus. And the reason he sent Jesus because he is love is so that we can have confidence on the day of, and the word is judgment, judgment. There are lots of other scriptures we could point to, but those are enough to show us that God is both fully love and absolutely just. And it's his justice today that we need to focus on. And that's gonna be one of the reasons that hell becomes reasonable and it becomes logical to us. And we're gonna do that with a case study. The case study is the scripture that was read for you earlier, Luke chapter 16. And Jesus, the master communicator, right, tells the story of two men. His main point was really not to teach about hell. Hell is just the setting for the story. Um, And so we have to be careful about absolutes here. And yet we can still learn a ton about hell because in the text, there are a few things that pop out. And I want you to see today names, flames, and blames. Yes, I came up that myself. Thank you very much. Names, flames, and blames. First, the story is about two men. And one guy is simply called a rich man. He doesn't have a name. And the rich man lived a life of luxury. He dressed in linen. He dressed in purple. His house was big enough to have a gate out front. He feasted on whatever he wanted all the time. And the second man is, has a name. His name is Lazarus. Lazarus is a very opposite uh, of the rich man uh, kind of station in life. And he is a beggar at the rich man's gate. He's hoping for just a scrap of food uh, from the rich man's table. He lived at the, uh, he laid uh, out front of the rich man's place and dogs would actually come and lick his sores. And so we know he suffered from some sort of physical ailment. And so there are two men and they have two opposite stations in life, but both men die. Oh, that's a lesson right there. Doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, death will one day knock at your door. And both men die. And Lazarus, the text says, is taken to Abraham's side. Uh, It means he's taken to heaven. And the rich man dies and is buried. And on the other hand, he finds himself not in heaven, but in Hades, in torment or in hell. And where he is, for whatever reason, Jesus frames the story up in such a way that the rich man can see Abraham, like the Old Testament guy, Old Old Testament Abraham, far off. And standing beside him is this guy, Lazarus. Now, the point of the story is not that rich people go to hell and poor people go to heaven. That's not it. The point of the story tells us, Jesus shows us two men, one who knew the gospel and one who did not. And they end up in very different places, not because one did good things and one didn't do good things, but because of what they trusted in during their life. And what they trusted in was very evident by the life that they lived. The rich man trusted in, guess what? Riches, yes. Lazarus 
trusted in God. You think, well, how can you say that? Well, it's their names that help us out. The difference between the two men is that one has a name and one doesn't. And commentators will tell us that one of the most striking things about this parable in particular is Jesus's use of a proper name. It's the only parable that Jesus ever told where a character in the story gets a proper name. Usually it's just a man went out or a woman was here or there was a shepherd here or a ruler did this. Nobody ever has a proper name. But here, the poor man at the gate has a name. His name is Lazarus. His counterpart, living in luxury, is nameless. He's just a rich man. Now, what's going on? Well, the name Lazarus means God is my help. God is my salvation. And so Lazarus has a name because God is his help. He looked to God. He trusted God during his life. The rich man does not have a name. He doesn't have any designation other than rich man because that's what he trusted. What sends you to hell is not being rich or poor or being more of a sinner than somebody else. What sends you to hell is making anything but God your help and your salvation. It is to separate yourself from Christ and from God by searching after something else. And that's what hell is. Hell is separation. The rich man doesn't have a name because during his life, all he trusted was his riches. He never had any identity outside of his wealth. And so when you make wealth your God, your identity and your salvation, then that's all you have. And let me tell you, wealth is a lousy, lousy savior. Take away riches from the rich man and there's nothing left of the rich man. All the good things in life that the rich man was after, he got, he worshiped his God fully, riches. And it it gave him a lot in this life, but in the end, it gave him nothing, no help, no salvation, and not even a name. On the other hand, Lazarus has a name. God is my help, God is my salvation. And in life, Lazarus had nothing. He was poor, he was sick, he was living at the gate. Dogs would come and lick his sores, he was suffering. But what did he do with all that? He let God be his help. He let God be his salvation. His suffering drove him to God so that God could save him. And in the end, he knew who he was. He, he had an identity because he sought after God. The only one, by the way, that can give us a name. The question we have to ask in this life is this. What am I looking to in this life for my help and for my salvation? Whatever it is, the rich man and Lazarus are both screaming that whatever we look to in this life, we will not stop looking to in the next one. That's the point. Even in eternity, we will continue to look to that something, whatever it is, to help us and to save us. And hell, on one level, is saying to God, I'm looking for something else to save me. I don't need you, I'm trusting in riches. And if our help is not in God, but in something other than him, then hell is where we will desire to be because hell is separation. Now, some of you picked up that I used a very strong word there, desire. Really? Are we gonna desire to be in hell? That's, that's a strong word, but it's on purpose. Let me show you what's going on by pointing you to flames. Let's look at the flames. Verse 24. The rich man yells over to Abraham, 
and he says, hey, Abe, I see that Lazarus is, is by you. Uh, could you send Lazarus to fetch me just a little bit of water on his finger? Because even that will help because I am agony in this flame. That's what he says. Fire is one of the main images that Jesus uses when he talks about hell. Uh, and what happens in a fire? Let's think about that. The substance on fire, let's say a log, is uh, lit on fire. And the, what the fire does it, is it literally begins to break it apart into smaller and smaller pieces. It begins to, to disintegrate the log. You start with a fresh log and the fire breaks that log down bit by bit until all you have is ashes. And that's what fire does. It disintegrates. And spiritually, Living for anything but God brings disintegration into your life in the same way that fire would disintegrate a log. Every time we take a step away from God, little bits of us break apart. Try it today, okay? Go from this place and step into worry a little bit. Step into bitterness a little bit. Step into anxiety this afternoon and just note what happens to you. You begin to break down. And if you stay in that anxiety and that worry long enough, then even, your body begins to break down. Ulcers can happen and hypertension can happen and all kinds of things. And that's just an image physically of what's going on in your soul. And so fire is the right picture. Sin disintegrates us. Why is there fire in hell? Because when you get away from God, all that's left is to be disintegrated and destroy. Fire does not cause things to cease to exist. It's just broken up into smaller and smaller and more and more pieces. And so hell is moving away from God, away from his presence. And the result of that is that you break down. The absence of God is a raging fire of brokenness because hell is disintegration. Hell is disintegration. And here's what scripture tells us, that if we strive to get away from the God who created us, then one day we may just succeed in that. Hell is a place for people who have wanted to be free from God their entire life, and they finally realize their ambition. And in that place, without the sustaining presence of God, the disintegrating work of sin continues to happen. The sin that broke you in this life will break you further in eternity to its fullest extent. C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, there's no other way to the happiness for which we were made. Good things as well as bad are caught by a kind of infection. If you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to be wet, you must get into the water. If you want joy and power and peace and eternal life, then you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. They are not a sort of prize that God just hands out to anyone. They are a great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality, God himself. And if you're close to it, if you're close to him, then the spray will wet you. But if you're not, you will remain dry. And he ends this way. Once a man is united to God, how could he not live forever? On the other hand, once a man is separated from God, what can he do but wither and die? That's disintegration. All sin is us saying to God, leave me alone. See, we have a wrong picture of what hell is. We think that hell is a 
a bowl full of people with a lid and God is standing on top of the lid because they all want to get out. That's not it. Hell is where people say, God, leave me alone. And God finally says, okay. And in the end, it's total breakdown and total disintegration. You can see it in the rich man even. He says, even aware of his surroundings, his separation, his suffering, he is blind to reality that's going on around him. He doesn't even do the obvious thing we would expect him to do, which is to cry out for forgiveness, for mercy, for salvation. He doesn't ever ask that of anyone. He doesn't ever ask that to God. It doesn't look like it even occurs to him to talk to God. He's just talking to Abraham. See, what we desire in this life, we will still desire in the next one. And here's the truth to chew on. People don't stop sinning in hell. It's it's exactly the opposite, actually. Because now God is removed from the picture, and now It's an unbridled fire and the consequences of sin, the disintegration, the brokenness won't ever stop either. It's what leads C.S. Lewis to write this about people who are damned in hell, that they are successful, that they are rebels to the end and the doors of hell are locked from the inside. Nobody's there who doesn't want to be there. Blames. Let's look at that one. The rich man begins to look around and he wanted to be his own master in his life and in eternity, he still is. He's still his own master. You can see how out of touch with reality he seems to be. I've already mentioned that he doesn't wanna talk to God, but to Abraham. And look what he says. He says, hey, Abraham, send Lazarus to, to go get me some water and cool my tongue. Now that's a bold move from somebody who's in hell and looking up into heaven, right? But that's how out of touch he is. He believes he's operating as if Lazarus was still the poor servant sitting at the gate. The rich man still thinks he has control. He still thinks he has power, even in hell. And he belongs utterly to himself. His reality is completely distorted. Tim Keller comments on this and he says that the rich man acting this way is like a three-week-old cadaver suddenly uh, lifting itself up smearing lipstick on its skeletal, skeletal gums and trying to flirt with somebody. And that would be silly if it wasn't so horrific. And that's what the rich man is doing. And that's what hell, hell is. Hell is self-deception. Hell is a place where we will do nothing but blame other people. Look what he does. The rich man says, send somebody back to tell my brothers. At least you can do this. You can send somebody back to tell my brothers so that they don't end up here. And it sounds like care and concern. It sounds like what a good brother, but it's not. All that it is at the end of the day is blame. It's blame shifting. What he's really saying is this. How dare you, God? I didn't get a fair shake. I didn't have enough information. That's why I'm here. And he shrouds it in concern for his family. But his real point is that it's not his fault that he's in hell. And Abraham responds back and he cuts through the posturing. He says, look, even if somebody rises from the dead, your brothers aren't going to believe. Now, who's telling the story? It's Jesus himself. I found it fascinating that he inserts that line in there that even somebody rises from the dead, even if that happens, your brothers aren't gonna believe. 
And the implication is you wouldn't have believed either. What's Abraham saying? He's saying the reason you never believed was not a lack of information, but a lack of will. If a person doesn't wanna believe, then they'll write off any evidence that they should. And if Lazarus goes back and is resurrected, they'll just write it off as a hallucination. That's what's happening. And Abraham is saying, you had the truth. They have the truth. You have the truth more than ever right now because look around you, man, and you still don't believe because the rich man never asks for forgiveness. He never cries out to God saying, save me. He still thinks he's in control. He's totally disintegrated. He's out of touch. He just blames everyone else for, their situ- for his situation, but he doesn't do anything to change it. It's what he always wanted, to live life on his terms. And that's what hell is. It's getting what you wanted all along. Hell is self-deception. C.S. Lewis puts it very well in The Problem of Pain. He writes, in the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? Are you asking God to wipe out their past sins at all costs and to give people a fresh start? Guess what? That's what he's already done through Jesus on, on Calvary. Are you asking God to forgive them? They won't be forgiven. The rich man never asks for forgiveness. Do you see? He's thrown that part of his heart away. Are you asking God to leave them alone? Here's what C.S. Lewis says. Alas, I am afraid that's what he does. There's nothing unfair about hell. People there won't ask for forgiveness. They'll just say, I shouldn't be here. It's someone else's fault that I am. And don't you see? It's a blame game. And God is just giving them what they wanted for eternity. And so hell is probably the most fair doctrine anywhere in the Bible. And any concept of a God without his willingness to say, okay, you can have what you want, that would be a God who was less just. That would be injustice. And there would be scores of problems with that. We are the only ones in the West who sit back sipping our Starbucks lattes, cruising Instagram, and say, well, everyone should get in. How dare God keep anyone out of heaven? He's not, by the way, if you've been listening, he doesn't keep anybody out. But in other parts of the world, in other parts of history, people would shoot back at us and they would say, what in the world? How can you worship a God who fails to uphold justice by letting evil go unpunished? Ask the village that was plundered by warlords. Ask the women that were raped. Ask the men whose heads were cut off. They would say this, if God is worthy at all, then there has to be a hell. There has to be justice for what was done to us. Even John in the book of Revelation will say that death itself is thrown into the lake of fire. So in order to kill death, there has to be somewhere to put it You have to have hell. And hell and love are not incompatible. God is good because he is just, because he is the perfect judge. And that's where we're gonna end today. I want the band to come forward. And as I do, I just wanna say this. The judge is gonna say today that hell is not for you. Hell is not for you. You don't have to choose what will put you there. 
You can choose today, Lazarus. You can choose today, God is my help. God is my salvation. Do you see what all of the objections about hell are ultimately saying? All of those ideas, uh, hell is overkill, hell is torture, hell is repulsive, hell is forced on people, hell promotes hatred, that's one that's out there. All of those ideas are saying the same thing. People are saying this, I want a God who wipes out all of the past sins of the damned at all costs so that they could have a fresh start. Do you hear it? Do you hear it in there, in the question? They're saying this, I want there to be a miraculous help so hell ceases to be a reality. Do you hear it? That's what they're saying. Do you hear what's really underneath that? They're saying, I wish God would do something about hell so that people don't have to end up there. Do you see it in the question? That's exactly what he has done. He's done it in Jesus. For God so loved the world that he sends his son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He's already done what they're asking in their objection. So the question is, what are you looking to for your help in this life? Are you looking to Lazarus's name? God is my help, God is my salvation. Oh, he's the only way that we have a relationship with God. He's the only help that is available. Here, at the end of the day, here's what we do. Everybody is betting their lives on something. Some of us are betting our life uh, that there is no God. Some people are betting their life on Buddha. Some people are betting their life on Krishna or some other religion. Some, we're all betting our life. Some people are betting their life on riches, like the rich man. We're all betting our life on something. In this room, most of us are betting our life that Jesus is not a liar, that he is telling the truth. And when he says that no one comes to the Father except through me, that I am the way and the truth and the life, we're betting that he's telling the truth, that it's not a way or the best way or one of the ways or a nice way, but the way and the life and the truth. We're betting our lives that Jesus is the only help. He is the only salvation to get us a life of eternity with God. Father, we thank you that Jesus is our help and our salvation. I pray that we would shed tears in our hearts for people who do not know Jesus. That's the mission of this church, to share this love that you have for all people that sent an only son, an only begotten son to hang on a cross so that we might have life forever. He endured the wrath of all sin, the penalty of all sin, the justice that had to be carried out. Jesus endured that for us so that we don't have to. Hell is avoidable if we will just trust in the only one who has overcome it for us. Would you help us? Maybe there's somebody in this room that needs to trust for the first time. Will they do that today? Would you move them by your spirit and help them to know Jesus today? to know him in faith, in repentance, in baptism so that they might know you.
it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're gonna sing a song. If that's your decision today, you come as we sing.